It's October 2017. Jessica Schuler is sitting in a courtroom in Wise County in the Appalachian Mountains of Virginia. Green sweater, long blonde hair, very quiet. She's 29 years old, works as a waitress, has an 11-month-old baby. She's looking kind of nervous, sitting beside her lawyer, hands folded in her lap. Ms. Schuler, I'm going to ask you to stand, please. Raise your right hand. You solemnly swear or affirm the testimony you give me the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Okay, the judge, the Honorable Chadwick Dotson, starts reading the charges against her. unlawfully and feloniously forge a check to the prejudice of another with intent to defraud. Two charges of forgery. It's a class five felony that carries a maximum punishment of 10 years in the penitentiary. How do you plead to that charge? Okay, I'm going to just speak up for me a little bit, please, okay? And it goes on. Two charges of uttering or handing a forged check to a bank teller, getting money from the forged check, that's a grand larceny charge, two more charges of prescription fraud. Guilty, guilty, guilty. Same plea each time. All right, you have a seat. Judge Dotson asks Jessica if she understands the charges against her, if she can read the English language. Yes, she responds. She has a college degree. He asks if she has any questions. No, she says. Ms. Schuler, I've tried to explain your rights to you here. Do you still wish to enter a plea of guilty to these eight charges? Yes, sir. And then his tone kind of changes. Tell me what happened. Um, well, I previously had a drug problem and... It's kind of hard to hear. She tells the judge she had a drug problem. So she wrote and cashed checks in her father's name. And then she stole medication, oxycodone, when she was working as a registered nurse at a hospital by saying it was for a patient. And I had got the medication out for myself. These charges are four years old. The judge asks why did it take so long to get her here. Her lawyer explains Jessica didn't know there was a warrant out for her arrest till she applied for a passport. When she found out, she turned herself in. He tells the judge his client had a drug problem. She went to rehab. She's been sober ever since. Tell me about that. Uh, yes, once, once all that happened, um, I checked myself into rehab. And Where? Where? At Galax. Mm-hmm. And, uh, she had to get out of Wise County to get sober, she told the judge. Wise County has some of the highest prescription opioid rates in the country. For example, in 2015, one little town in this county had more prescriptions than residents. We're talking five prescriptions for every man, woman, and child. To break her drug habit, she moved to North Carolina, where she now lives with her fiancé, her stepsons, and her baby. And you, you got a handle on this thing now? Because it must have been pretty bad yes. for all this, for it to come to this. Yes. Before the court sentences you, do you wish to make a statement? The eight charges Jessica is pleading guilty to each carries a maximum sentence of five, ten, even twenty years in prison. You know what the maximum punishment could be on these charges? It's uh, a lot. Yes. It's more time than you'd be able to serve. The judge means that if he sentences her to maximum back-to-back sentences, she'll never get out of prison. But this judge has a little more leeway than the judge who sentenced Keith Jackson. What happens next is up to him. Welcome back to The Uncertain Hour. 
I'm Chrissy Clark, senior correspondent from Marketplace's Wealth and Poverty Desk. And this season, we're asking the question, how do drug epidemics end? Over the last few episodes, we told you about the ramp-up of the war on drugs during the crack epidemic of the 1980s, when it was disproportionately people of color standing before judges, getting long prison sentences. Now we're going to turn to the opioid epidemic, the biggest drug epidemic this country has ever known. It started with prescription painkillers and has evolved to include drugs like heroin and fentanyl. It has lasted longer than the crack epidemic. It's hit more communities, and it's hurt many more people, including many more white people, like Jessica Schuler. We'll get back to her story later on. Over the next few episodes, we're going to look at some of the ways the country is still reckoning with tough-on-drug crimes policies set decades ago. Back then, there was widespread agreement that the laws needed to get tougher among both Democrats and Republicans. Today, the opposite is true. Both Republicans and Democrats have worked to roll back some of those same policies. But if you don't fight an epidemic with law enforcement, what do you do instead? For the next few episodes, we're returning to Wise County, Virginia, a place that's struggling to recover from a tidal wave of drug addiction, to see what's changed and what hasn't, and to ask what might stop the deadliest drug epidemic ever to hit this country. We went to Wise County last season on The Uncertain Hour when we were asking the question, how did the opioid epidemic start? And in that episode, which you should check out, by the way, our producer, Caitlin Esch, went to Wise County to see how the early and lax regulation of prescription painkillers played out. Now she's going back to catch up with the people she met back then and with one guy in particular, because his story is the story of Wise. His story shows what happened there, and she wanted to know how it turned out for him and a lot of other people like him. So I'm going to hand the story over to Caitlin now. And a warning, this episode does have a few swear words in it. The guy I wanted to catch up with is Joey Ballard. A cop I know first told me about him. The cop said, no one knows local drug markets better than this guy. He was on pain pills. I busted him a few times, but he's sober now. You got to talk to Joey. Joey had left Wise, so a few days later, I drove about two hours across the Tennessee border to meet him in the parking lot of a discount tobacco store. I had no idea what Joey looked like, so he texted me a picture of his face, scruffy beard and light brown hair, black glasses and a white t-shirt. It was the spring of 2017, early on a Sunday morning, and it was Joey's 42nd day off of drugs. Well, all drugs except for pot. A pretty big deal since he'd been using drugs for most of the past 15 years. As I pulled into the parking lot, I saw him, standing alone. The lot was deserted except for one other car. The car pulled away when I arrived. Suspicious, I thought. I found out later it was Joey's mother in that car. She was so worried that he was sneaking off to buy drugs that she followed him. Over that spring and summer, I interviewed Joey a couple of times. We would drive to a park. Are you ready? Yeah. Tell me where we are. I'm getting a level for you. Uh, we are in Johnson City, Tennessee. We'd sit at a picnic table in the shade. Uh, surrounded by lots of grass and trees. <laughs> That's pretty much it. And that sound is cricket? Does uh, it? Do you it's hear a that? bird. Some of it's crickets. Joey grew up in Wise County, and he spent most of his life there, around the same people. It's a place he describes as... A 
back on the map. <laughs> Joey's dad was a mechanic. His mother worked in a sewing factory for a while, then stayed home with the kids. There wasn't a whole lot to do in Wise County when Joey was a teenager. On the weekends, he'd drive around with friends, hang out at Walmart, smoke a little pot. And when he was in high school in the late 90s, early 2000s, pain pills flooded Wise County. You know, when I graduated, it's all I saw. I mean, it was everywhere. You could order them online if you wanted them. You could go down the street and get them. It didn't matter. You could get them wherever you wanted to. Let me just say, because you'll hear Joey refer to drugs by name, Lortab, Oxycontin, Percocet, these are all pain pills, prescription opioids. By the early 2000s, Wise had them all. When Joey was about 20, he met a woman at work. Just young love is what it was, or young lust, more or less. They dated for a little while, then got married. She was the stepdaughter of a local OxyContin dealer. The wedding gift from Joey's new father-in-law to the young couple was cash and OxyContin. The first time I ever did an Oxy, um, I split a 20-milligram pill with my wife. I puked for three hours, off and on for three hours. High as hell. (laughs) Opioids give a lot of people a feeling of euphoria and a sense of well-being. And if you crush pills and snort them, like Joey was doing, you get the full impact of the drug all at once, along with a megadose of the drug's common side effects, nausea and vomiting. Of course, today, we all know how addictive opioids can be. But back in the early 2000s, Joey didn't fully realize the risk he was taking. OxyContin was much stronger than any drug he'd ever tried. It's similar to heroin. And it was, I mean, it was just, it blew my mind. Like, it was such a good high. Um, and it's funny, though. You would think, oh, well, this is going to make me throw up. Let's not take it. <laughs> Common sense. Um, I bet probably the first 10 or 15 times I took Oxy or snorted Oxy, I threw up every time. Soon, Joey developed a tolerance and stopped puking. He didn't realize it at the time, but he was slipping deeper into drug use, getting high on the weekends, then every day. Soon, Joey was driving his new father-in-law to a gas station in Knoxville once a month to meet his dealer. We would drop him off at a gas station. No, absolutely no exaggeration. Five minutes, turn around, drive back. He would come back with five or 600 pills. And I'm like, how in the hell does he do it? Like, who's he know? And, he, and it's literally just a drop off. He'd pay for gas, food, get us high the whole time, and then give us like 1080s. 1080s refers to 10 Oxycontins with 80 milligrams of oxycodone in a pill. That's really strong, by the way. For example... If you get your wisdom teeth pulled at the dentist, you might be prescribed a bottle of pills, each with five milligrams of oxycodone. The 80s Joey's talking about are 16 times as strong. For a lot of people, addiction began in the doctor's office, after a tooth was pulled or a leg was broken. And a lot of pills that were sold on the street started out as legitimate prescriptions, resold by middleman dealers. Throughout the 2000s, before prescription monitoring programs are really common, you could visit doctors in different states and get several prescriptions. Virginia, Kentucky, Tennessee. You could hit up three pill mills in an afternoon. Joey's father-in-law would buy hundreds of pain pills in Knoxville, and then Joey would drive him back to the Appalachian Mountains of Virginia to sell. 
The going price for OxyContin then was a dollar a milligram. So a single 80 milligram pill would fetch 80 bucks. Eventually, Joey graduated from drug driver to small time drug dealer. He started out buying prescriptions on the street. So I could get a script of Lortab, tens, you know, say there's 90 of them. On the street, that's $900. If I can buy it for $500, I can make $400, or I can make my money back and then make, you know, 40 free pills. 40 free pills. Joey wasn't getting rich as a drug dealer. He was getting by, basically supporting his own addiction. When he was in his mid-20s, Joey started getting his pain pills directly from a doctor. It was Lortab at the time, which is an opioid, and he was also getting muscle relaxers. Like, I actually do have back problems. I mean, I really do. They did an MRI. They found out that I do have something wrong with my, my spine, like I have bulging disc and all that. In six months, the doctor quadrupled his prescription from 45 pills a month to 180. I wasn't in that much pain, <laughs> you know? No way. Joey wasn't the only one in town getting more pain pills than he needed. There were times that, like, I couldn't sell anything because everybody had something. Like, everybody was going to the doctor. If you're going to the doctor and I'm going to the doctor, we don't need to help each other. Joey's doctor eventually did get shut down by law enforcement. Joey was transferred to a new doctor. Well, the first time I saw the doctor, the guy looks at me and he's like, I'm not writing your muscle relaxer. And I'm like... Okay. He's like, it's habit forming. I looked at him like the most puzzling way. I'm like, you're writing me 180 lower tabs, but you're not going to write me the muscle relaxer because it's habit forming? Like, something doesn't sound right. Like, You know what I mean? Like, obviously lower tabs habit forming. We know this by now. It's 2010 <laughs> at that time. Like, we know it's habit forming, but you're not going to write me the muscle relaxer. Okay. Like, I mean, <laughs> got news for him. Like, my money was coming from the lower tab, not the, not the muscle relaxer anyway. Joey used drugs and sold on the side for years, even as people he knew started ODing and dying. He remembers this one guy, a friend of his wife's. We had just hung out with him. We dropped him off at uh, his friend's house. We left. And then the next morning, uh, she got a phone call. And he died. He was like, 2021, 20, like right around my age, had just had uh, one baby and had another one on the way. What, I mean, was that like a major warning to you or did it just seem like? It just seemed like a regular day, as sad as that is. And like, it makes you sound cold hearted in a way, but like, it was just, it got so regular there for a while. It's like, all right. So did you continue to do OxyContin after that? Mm-hmm. We did an Oxy <laughs> that morning before we went to his funeral. Maintaining an addiction takes work, a lot of planning and hustling. There were days when Joey couldn't get any pills, like when he'd burned through his monthly supply early or when his prescription was stolen. How many times have I went dope sick because I haven't had any drugs? More times than I could ever tell you. And this is what happens when your body goes into withdrawal. I'll just list some of the symptoms. Muscle pain, diarrhea, nausea, vomiting, sweating, anxiety, insomnia. I talked to one woman who detoxed in jail. Dozens of women to a pod, one bathroom, no privacy. 
She couldn't leave the toilet. You get the idea. It's hell. I mean, it, like, the first time that I, that, that I detoxed, there's two weeks of my life I don't even remember. <laughs> I mean, it's just that bad. Like, all I remember is just sleeping. That's it. That's all. That's all I could do is sleep. And I would, like, the worst, the worst stomach pains you could ever imagine, like the worst stomach flu you could ever get in the world. In a way, Joey was one of the lucky ones. He managed to get sober and get away. But a lot of his friends and acquaintances weren't so lucky. Just looking back through like a yearbook and seeing how many people that I went to school with, you know, it's not been that long ago. I mean, not really how many people are dead from drug overdose. In Wise County, nearly everyone has lost someone or knows someone who's lost someone to drugs. It is one of the highest drug overdose death rates in the state. What happened in Wise, to Joey's classmates and to Joey, happened to a lot of people in small towns and cities across the country. The pain pills that flooded these places are harder to get now, but their trail of devastation is still visible. Across the country, people who got addicted to pain pills have turned to other drugs like heroin, fentanyl, or methamphetamine. Every person I talked to in Wise had a story about drugs. I heard about it from nurse practitioners. We see the patients when they come in here. We see the ones that come in looking like skeletons and they've had the meth and you can see the skin. Or we see their children that are now being raised by great-grandparents, not just grandparents, but great-grandparents. And we see that and we see the tremendous burden that it's putting on the society here. I heard about it from business owners who can't hang on to their workers. We would go through and hire other people, and they would show up first couple days okay, and then they would show up under the influence, and and we'd have to send them home. Sometimes it seemed like it was three or four a day. I heard about it from lawyers who represent children in foster care. The saddest thing I've seen is a mother losing her kids because she's on drugs, because they will scream and cry And they will tell you, I'll do anything to get my kids back, but they won't. Most of the time, I'd say like 90% of the time, they will not get their kids back because they can't stay off drugs. It breaks your heart. It wasn't always this way. That's next, after the break. Talking to your backseat babies about money can be so hard. In fact, you probably don't even know where to start. So that's where the newest version of the Million Bazillion Academy steps in, our email newsletter course. You can start whenever, and you'll get a new lesson each week that you and your kids can complete at your own pace. They'll learn about crypto, the stock market, and so much more. And best of all, it's free. Million Bazillion Academy, making kids smarter about money. Sign up today at marketplace.org academy. Talking to your backseat babies about money can be so hard. In fact, you probably don't even know where to start. So that's where the newest version of the Million Bazillion Academy steps in, our email newsletter course. You can start whenever, and you'll get a new lesson each week that you and your kids can complete at your own pace. They'll learn about crypto, the stock market, and so much more. And best of all, it's free. Million Bazillion Academy, making kids smarter about money. Sign up today at marketplace.org academy. Wise County is rural, made up of many small towns of a few thousand people. It's a beautiful place, with roads that wind through mountains thick with trees, 
overlooks with views for miles, run-down but charming main streets, neat little homes with rocking chairs out front. Wise County is almost entirely white. It's always been poor. About 20% of people live below the poverty line. People here tend to be sicker and die younger than people in Northern Virginia. Many families have lived in the same towns for generations. There's a lot of pride in that. And that pride is on display every weekend of every summer for the past 55 years when community actors put on a play for hundreds of people performed on an outdoor stage with a creek running through it. You can hear the sounds of wind and distant thunder. Bats are flying overhead. play is called Trail of the Lonesome Pine. It's the region's origin story set to music. Some of the actors have been performing in it for the past 10, even 20 years. The play is based on the historical novel of the same name. It spawned multiple movies, including a 1936 version starring Henry Fonda. It tells the story of how coal was discovered in the Appalachian Mountains. I heard you was mighty interested in coal around here. Oh, yes, sir. I believe it's a fortune to be had in these mountains. Just got to keep looking. You ever seen any coal like this here before? Well, well Judge, this is cattle coal. Bird's eye cattle. Where'd you find this? On my farm, about five foot thick. What? And no part. No part. You know, not many A handsome mining engineer swoops in, and a mountain girl is forced to choose between the old, traditional way of life and the way of the future, mining. Spoiler alert, she chooses the mining engineer, and the whole region chose mining. It completely transformed the economy for the next hundred years. It brought an influx of jobs and built an economy of extraction. Today, there's a Walmart, a small university, a couple of hospitals, and a four-lane that is a highway with two lanes in each direction. It's been huge for getting around the region. The coal industry has declined. It's a sliver of what it once was. And the population is declining, too. Still, this is a place that people love, that people want to save. The folks that live here are very hardworking, uh, very determined. If I can say anything about the people in Appalachia, I mean, they help one another. I see a community and know a community that I grew up in that is strong, faith-based. Rarely did we lock our doors. My grandmother used to leave her screen door open all the time. They're quick to help, but they're also quick to leave you alone. It's a place that people love with some undeniable problems. I heard so many people say that the opioid crisis has touched every single family. I found that's no exaggeration. My husband and I were at home. We got a knock on the door. It was a police officer. Told us that our daughter was in the hospital and said it's not good. That's Gleema Walker. She's 51 years old. So I remember praying all the way to the hospital. God, just please don't let her die. Gleema's daughter had been hanging out with a friend, doing drugs, a deadly mix of methadone and benzodiazepine, which is a sedative, when she overdosed. We got to the hospital, and a friend of the family, she was a nurse that was on duty there, she looked at me and she shook her head. She said, Gleema, she almost didn't make it. Her daughter's heart stopped twice that night, but she didn't die. When I talked to Gleema, her daughter Angela was there sitting across the table, nodding as her mother talked about that day. 
She doesn't know what it's like seeing your child laying in a hospital bed and knowing they almost died. It's, it, like I said, it, it breaks your heart in two because you didn't raise them to be like that. Shortly after that overdose, Angela managed to get sober on her own. That's not a good life to live at all. I just wanted a different life. So, I, I mean, I, ha- I had to do something for myself. And that's the sad thing about it. You know, a lot of people don't have the strength to do that. Angela was pregnant with her first child when I talked to her. She was doing well, living with her fiancé and excited about motherhood. But Gleema was still getting over the death of her brother, who OD'd several years ago. And Gleema's son, Angela's brother, is in and out of jail on drug charges. He happened to be in jail when I talked to them. I asked Gleema about that. Honestly, I'll tell you what I told my son. I think it's a good thing. If jail is what it takes to make you open your eyes and make you see what you're doing, I said, then it's a good thing. My son may be sad to hear me say that, but as a mother, it's it's a relief to know he's somewhere where he's not going to get drugs and overdose and die. I don't want to see him dead like I did my brother. I just don't want to see it happen. And whatever it takes to change him, I want him to change. Gleema was born and raised in this area. She's watched it transform around her. When I was growing up, it was, you know, you see people drinking every once in a while, or you see them build a bonfire, and the guys would gather around, and they would drink, or sometimes you would hear of somebody smoking pot. I do not know why it changed so drastically over the years. It just seemed like one person right after the other started getting addicted. As Gleam is talking, she's reflecting, asking herself and her daughter, what happened here? Something I was thinking about, back when the coal business was going really well here, there wasn't as much addiction here, um, was it there? It started in the coal mines. Workers that had been injured started going to the doctor right around the time, I think it was in the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, they started going to the doctor if they had issues. The doctors were readily available to prescribe the OxyContin. They wanted to push it on everybody, so they did that. But that's where it all started around here was in the coal mines. Hey, you know, I got this. You want to try it? It might help you out. Stuff like that. But I wonder where the coal business has gone down so much because the economy. You know, I mean, that was a big part of our economy here. It seems like it's, it's gotten worse since then. I mean, it seems really bad since nobody has jobs like they had before. Let me just pause a minute and say, experts still debate the exact causes of drug epidemics. There are some factors that definitely play a role. The economy, for example. As Gleema points out, loss of major industry, loss of jobs, those things put a community at risk of experiencing a drug epidemic. That was true back in the 80s with crack, and it's true today with opioids. But the most important factor in this crisis, a lot of experts say, is the sudden supply of prescription painkillers. As Angela points out, in places like Wise, the market was flooded, and that created a lot of addiction. Christopher Room is a professor of public policy and economics at the University of Virginia. If we hadn't flooded the country with these very strong opioids, and, you know, most of these opioids are are chemically almost identical to heroin, or in some cases they're stronger. If we hadn't put those out in the market, we wouldn't have seen these deaths. It wouldn't have been that these were people trying to kill themselves. It was they were at risk, and when we 
spread this, this risky factor. The drugs, uh, they're the ones who've suffered the most. There are other factors that seem to be important, like the concentration of physical labor-intensive jobs that can lead to injury and pain. Also, economic incentives for drug dealing. Immigration. Areas with more immigrants have fewer drug overdose deaths, though it's unclear why. Demographics, access to health care, and racial disparities in prescribing patterns. For example, African Americans and Latinos are more likely to report experiencing severe pain most of the time than whites. But African Americans and Latinos are less likely to receive any pain medication at all. And when they do, it's at lower doses. Research suggests that white people are more likely to be believed when they're in pain. They're more likely to be prescribed opioids for migraines in ERs, for example, and for lower back pain. For many years, throughout the early and mid-2000s, it was largely white people dying from opioid overdoses. But since 2014, the rate of African Americans dying from opioid overdoses has skyrocketed, increasing at a rate much faster than that of whites. In some cities, like Washington, D.C., more than 80% of people who OD and die from opioids are Black. So these are the factors that put a community at risk of a drug epidemic. And once it hits, it's really hard to stop. We're just chatting about what's going on. One day, when I was in Wise County, I stopped by a Food City grocery store. There were a couple of volunteers standing next to a rack of potted plants. They'd put out a big banner that said, Got Drugs? Number four. Number four. This will be the fourth full bag that we've taken today. We are getting some pain medicines and some um, benzoids and opiates too. So we're getting a little bit of everything. And And that's most common. We don't ask questions. People came by all morning, dropping off painkillers and other drugs from their medicine cabinets, left over from relatives who died or from past surgeries. The volunteers filled four garbage bags that morning. But even if you could collect every prescription that's been written here, the addiction that started with those pills wouldn't go away. As sources for pain pills dry up, people move on to other drugs, opioids like heroin and fentanyl, and in some towns, stimulants like meth. That's what happened to Joey. He says the meth high is a different high, but it is a high, and meth is cheap and abundant. It's crazy because I said, oh, I'll never do that. Never say never. But, like, I could tell it was literally changing the person that I was. Like, I, I'm a pretty soft-hearted person. I was beginning, starting to get angry at shit I shouldn't get angry at, you know? And, like, that was another reason that I was like, okay, look, either you can stay here and keep doing the shit that you're doing, or you can finally really try and get out of it. Yeah, that's where I am. To get out of that world, to break his addiction, he had to leave Wise. I knew that if I didn't do something, I was either going to end up back in trouble with the police or dead. The turning point came slowly, then all at once, when Joey was 33 years old. It was probably a good three or four months of just like being depressed and like just hating myself for the most part to realize that, okay, 
I really need to get my shit together. <laughs> like, something has to change. So one day, in the spring of 2017, Joey moved in with his mom, about an hour and 20 minutes away from his hometown, across the state line in Tennessee. He got a job at a cell phone store, weaned himself off of pain medicine, quit using meth. It is by far the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Absolutely the hardest thing I've ever done. For Joey, drugs are never far from his mind, even as he takes a sip from a drink with a plastic straw. I can see a cut straw laying on the ground, and other people would just walk past it and think, oh, it's just trash on the ground. I see, like, if I see, like, a cut-up straw, like, this much of a straw cut somewhere, I know that that is not being... I know exactly what that's for. As he walks through the world, Joey sees it differently. That cut straw, it's for snorting crushed-up pills. Driving by Walmart reminds him of meth. You can buy Sudafed there. Like that, you know what I mean? Like, that's how you, it's, it's just how your brain keeps working. But other than that, like, you just have to have this mindset. Like, and it's so true, you have to distance yourself from the people you're around. That distance was working. By the summer of 2017, his life was slowly getting better. He had a new girlfriend. He saved up and bought a car. That's the craziest thing, like. People hate going to the store or whatever, or hate going out and doing this or that, but like, when you've not had a car and you've walked for a year, (laughs) miles and miles and miles, it is fabulous to be able to walk down to my car, get in my car and drive down the road and buy a pack of cigarettes and come back to the house. (laughs) Like, I love it. It's to not have to rely on anybody, not have to worry about any getting here or there. Just go do it. And it's it's great. (laughs) It really is. That summer in Johnson City, Joey was hopeful, but he was also worried that his sobriety wouldn't last, that he'd relapse. I don't want to go back to Wise County, you know? Like, I hope that I never have to go back over there for anything, to be honest, because I know that I'm gonna run into somebody that I know. And if I'm by myself and I've got money in my pocket, like, I'm still at that stage where it almost scares me to have a job and know that I have regular money coming in because I'm so used to spending all that money out. And like, that's what scares me is I'm afraid one day something's gonna happen and I'm not gonna be able to say no. And that scares the living shit out of me, it really does. But recovery can be messy. For most people, it takes multiple tries to get off of drugs and some people never do. Next episode, we'll hear what happened when Joey did go back to Wise. And we'll hear what happened to Jessica Schuler, the woman who forged checks to feed her drug habit. I feel awful for the things I've done. I was not raised that way. Um, that's not who I am. But that's who I was while on the drugs. And, I mean, they took a hold. I told Joey, if you don't chill out and you don't get some help, you're going to die. You're either going to be killed or you're going to die. How was that received? I know it. That's what he said. So... What do you do? That's coming up on the next Uncertain Hour. That's it for this episode. 
Thanks so much for listening. We did a whole story last season about the roots of the opioid crisis, the regulations that brought OxyContin to market in a way that downplayed the dangers of addiction and death. If you haven't heard it already, you should check it out. It's called The Sentence That Helped Set Off the Opioid Crisis. This episode of The Uncertain Hour was reported by Caitlin Esch. The Uncertain Hour is produced by me, Chrissy Clark, and Caitlin Esch, along with associate producer Peter Balanon-Rosen, production assistant Annie Reese, and digital producer Tony Wagner. Ben Hethcote is our video producer. Mixing and sound design by Jake Gorski. Additional production help from Lyra Smith. Our podcast is edited by Catherine Winter. Satara Nieves is the executive director of On Demand at Marketplace. Deborah Clark is the senior vice president and general manager. Special thanks to Nancy Fargali, Tommy Andres, and Betsy Streisand. You can see photos of Wise on our website, marketplace.org, or on Instagram and Facebook. We also produced a series of videos introducing you to Wise and the people who live there. They're really beautiful, and you should definitely check them out on our YouTube channel. We're Marketplace APM on all those platforms. 